Andrea, would you read your scripture for us? Our scripture today comes from Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, John. Appreciate them helping to kind of open the door for us as we do talk about the subject of marriage because one thing that can happen in churches is uh, pretending and coming in here and trying to feel like, oh, I've got it all together. We have to act like we have it all together. And there are exactly zero perfect people in this room. And so I'm grateful for them modeling that openness and transparency for us as we go before the Lord. You know, Andrea mentioned, like, we have to deal with things right now, like in the marriage, you know, conflict, we have to deal with it right now, right? Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And when Aaron Lynn and I got married, we were still living in Alaska at the time. <laughs> so in the wintertime, it's like, you got to go now to, but then the, like in the summer, you can put things off for months. It's amazing. So, all right, that was a joke. Uh, I'm glad it worked. Uh, I was trying out some Alaska humor on you here. Real quickly, so we are talking about marriage, and I just want to say very simply to those of you who are here who are not yet married but desire to be, if for whatever reason, maybe you're not in that season of life or the Lord hasn't brought the right person, um, or even for those of you who have um, experienced the pain of widowhood or divorce, um, I want to invite you in to see marriage today Uh, This is not a seven steps to a healthier marriage sort of sermon. This really is trying to portray the beauty of what marriage is and how it ultimately points us to the love that we have in Christ Jesus. And to those of you who are married, even if you have a good marriage, a healthy marriage, a strong marriage, it is only just the absolute faintest taste of the kind of love that God has for us. So we all can benefit from what the Word of God has to say about marriage. And for those of you who are yourselves not married, uh, I would just invite you to seek to love your married brothers and sisters, uh, to serve them, to care for them, to provide wisdom and insight that you have that, and, and even perspective that they don't have. And we will be in a few weeks talking about singleness and dating and even uh, the subject of friendship. So there will be more weeks ahead to address uh, these other aspects of human relationships. But for today, we're focusing on marriage, and so let's, before we do anything else, let's pray. Lord, uh, I need your grace, I need your help. Would you guide and direct and guard my speech that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word? I pray for every single individual here, uh, men and women, young and old, created in your image and likeness, Lord God, that we would know um, that it is a 
It is a lie of our culture that we are somehow incomplete unless we are married. And yet at the same time, Lord God, we recognize that marriage is this incredible, profound gift that you have given to us ultimately to point us towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that this good news would be our focus today and that we would, we would be built up in the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, as a result of our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, I want to, as, as I said, I don't, I don't want to necessarily throw stones, but this is not a seven steps to a happy marriage sort of sermon. This is a theological portrait of what marriage is, what its purpose is, how it works. And yes, I will offer some practical steps towards the end, but uh, because each of our relationships are so unique, it's hard to do like a seven steps to a happy marriage sort of a thing. There are principles we can apply, but I think we are all most built up, we're all most benefited when we have our hearts and our minds filled with the storyline of Scripture and what marriage is. So our sister Andrea just read for us one passage from Ephesians 5, and I would like to read for us another passage from Genesis 2, and I will kind of throughout the teaching be going back and forth between the two of them because in Ephesians 5, Paul is actually riffing on Genesis 2 and is drawing from Genesis 2 in many of the themes. So I'm going to read for us Genesis 2, 18 through 25, if you want to flip in your Bible or swipe in your Bible back to Genesis chapter 2 to read along with me, and then we're going to uh, unpack this story of marriage. So starting in verse 18, uh, God has made humanity, he's made the man, he's put him in the garden to wa- work it, and it says he can eat from any tree, but must not eat from the knowledge of the tree of, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then, here we get in verse 18, everything up to this point has been good. God made it, it's good. God made it, it's good. And here's the first, it's not good. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. So I will make a, a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God had formed out of the ground every wild animal and out of the ground every bird of the sky and he brought everything, each one, to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, for Adam, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of the ribs, and just a quick little translation note there, nowhere in the Hebrew scriptures does that word translated as rib mean like a single bone, like one rib bone. Uh, It's actually used to talk about like the side of a ship or the side of a house. So we should see this more. Actually, you can find there's like receipts in archaeological digs where it talks about like buying a side of beef, and it uses the same Hebrew word for rib there. So this is a more substantial surgery than just removal of one rib. This is like a like a like a carving out. So the Lord did some serious physical removal from the man and he took one of his sides and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, "At last." So sick of looking at oxen and donkeys and albatrosses and uh, jackals and all those other animals. I named them all. I saw them all. This one finally at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one is like me 
This one corresponds to me. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And so this is why, we get a little narration, a little comment here. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, or unites with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So here's what I want to walk us through today. I want to walk through three aspects of marriage. I want to talk about the definition of marriage from this Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 passage. What, is it, what, is, what even is marriage? I want to talk about the dance that is marriage, how we engage in the dance steps, and then I do want to offer some practical help briefly at the end on how to develop your marriage. So the definition of marriage, the dance of marriage, and the development of a God-honoring marriage. So let's start with the definition. Now this is a definition that I have worked on over the years. This is something I have uh, come to articulate. I, I use this when I uh, do like pre-marriage counseling or when I do wedding ceremonies. And here is, here is how I would summarize what the Bible teaches about marriage. Marriage is a covenantal, whole life union between a man and a woman that is designed to point to the gospel. Marriage is a covenantal, whole life union between a man and a woman that is designed to point to the gospel. Let me break down these terms for a moment. Covenantal. This could be an entire teaching in and of itself. Covenant is one of those words that is often misunderstood. So in our world, in our society, we are more familiar with the idea of a contract. And while there is similarity between a contract and a covenant, the main difference is that a contract is only the terms and stipulation minus the relationship. Covenants do have terms and stipulations, but it's based on relationship. So over the, you know, the, the Christmas break, had some days off of work, and we all got that wonderful snowfall, and we were snowed in, and I had my kids at home, and I thought, you know what, I want to... I wanna, uh, I want to download a, a new video game that I can play with the kids. And so I got on the PlayStation store, and I had to sign up for their PlayStation service, and they gave me this big, giant, giant long terms and agreements. Now, can we just, we are, we're in church, we have to be honest. Have any of you ever read the electronic terms and agreements that you click and you sign? I'm just being honest. Just being vulnerable here. I did not read them. I scrolled down as fast as I could, clicked it, and said, all right, it's time to play whatever game we were playing with the kids. That's a contract. I don't have a relationship with anyone at Sony that I can call up like, hey, tell me about your day. How are you, how are you feeling? Hey, you know, I'm kind of frustrated. My Wi-Fi is going slow. Can you just pray for me right now? And they just, that's not how my relationship with Sony works. It is just terms and conditions. Covenant comes in and says, no, 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 this, we're going to have terms and conditions, but it is based on a relationship. The clearest example of that is God redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea, taking them to Mount Sinai, and he says, I will be your God, you will be my people, here's the book of Deuteronomy that are our terms and conditions, but it's based on a close, loving relationship. That's what covenant means. For those of you who are married, did you take wedding vows at your wedding ceremony? I hope you did. I'll have to confess to you, when I do weddings, I do not let couples write their own vows. Do you know why? Because they don't write vows. What couples write is, um, I mean this nicely, like mush. Uh, they write like, I don't mean in a mean way, I just mean like, oh, you're like the, the beauty of the moon and you're 
Love warms my heart like the light of the sun. It's like, that's awesome. Save that for the reception. We're here to do business. We're here to take vows, okay? They used to cut an animal in half as part of the ceremony. So just be, be thankful that we've, you know, kind of shifted and moved in society, right? At a wedding ceremony, you take vows. I love you. I am your husband. You are my wife. Here is what I am promising to you. That's covenant. Next portion of this is the idea of a whole life union. Marriage is a combination of so many different relationships. We can have a friendship apart from marriage, but marriage is one of the aspects of friendship. Some people would, ha- would have a lover that they don't have any commitment to. It's just a lover, but marriage is a lover within that sacred vow of covenant. Or you could even have like a roommate. Some, people, some of you have roommates, and marriage is kind of like having a roommate. It's all of these different relationships combined together. And even in this language of the two shall become one flesh, we can often focus on the physical union, like, like marital physical intimacy, but it is more than that. And again, I, I wish I could just spend all day unpacking all these things, but as you look through the way that flesh is used throughout the Hebrew scriptures, it's more than just bodies being joined together. It's all of life being joined together. Your heart, your mind, your spirituality, your, your, your bodies, your finances, all of your lives united together, saying, I'm not keeping any part of myself. Um, you, you keep, I'm keeping you out of any part of myself. We're going to join all of who we are together as husband and wife. It's a whole life, one flesh union. Between a man and a woman. Between a man and a woman. And there's so much beautiful poetry here in Genesis chapter 2 about the similarities and the differences between male and female right here in the giving of the first marriage. You might remember last week when we were talking about being embodied creatures, what it means to have a body. You might remember that I said that our, our maleness and our femaleness is not some afterthought or accident. It is not a product of kind of randomized evolution. It is from God himself who made us together in his image and likeness, male and female. And man and woman is core to what marriage actually is according to God's design. And there's a sameness There's a sameness. Adam says, you are now flesh of my flesh. You are now bone of my bone. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says, when a husband loves his wife, no one ever hates his own flesh, the Apostle Paul says. He's he's drawing from Genesis 2. That a a man and a woman who are in this covenant of marriage should view it it as we're, we're indispensably the same. And yet we also know that there is difference. That the man was created from the dust of the earth, whereas the woman was created out of the side of the man. We know that there are biological differences where where women's bodies are uniquely designed by God for the act of of gestation and and, and nourishing and caring for a newborn baby. And and men more stereotypically have bodies that are, are made for strength and upper body strength and protection and those sorts of things. It's just built into biology. Even the I had a conversation with somebody after the first service who works uh, in, in, in a hospital and they're talking about even just our DNA, that like there's an XX chromosome and an XY chromosome. It's like there's same and there's difference. And, and that's how we are as male and female. And so I would say that there is, uh, it is not incidental to marriage, just like it's not incidental to humanity overall. It is not incidental to marriage that it is a male-female partnering. And God gave us this gift for the creation of new human life. Just let that responsibility sink in on you for a minute there. My, uh, my oldest is 
17, my youngest is nine. We're kind of out of that like brand newborn baby phase of parenting. Um, some of you are way out of that phase, but some of you, we had uh, a family show up that had a five-day-old baby at the first day service. That's brave. And I can remember that feeling of like, this is a new human life. Somebody just handed me a baby. They should not have done that. <laughs> that in the uniting of, of man and woman together in this covenant of marriage, new life comes into the world. What an incredible power. What an incredible responsibility that God has entrusted to us. And then lastly, that it's meant to be a portrait of the gospel. Ephesians 5.32 is the concluding verse there of our scripture reading. Second to last verse. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Some of you may know from the the, the pages of the Old Testament, particularly the, the prophets and the minor prophets, they talk about the fact that God loves his people the way that a husband loves a wife, uh, the way that a husband would love his betrothed, but that we in our sinfulness are like an adulterous and wayward wife who, who follows our passions, we follow our desires, we follow our wants and our folly into pursuing other loves. And that it is not, sin is not just the breaking of some sort of law. It's actually the breaking of the heart of God who loves us like that. But God, being rich in mercy, was not content to let us just wander away. That God sent his son, Jesus, the, 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 the second person of the Trinity, the divine son of God, to take on flesh and to live in every respect as we live, although he was perfect and he was without sin. He never turned aside to other loves. He never followed those passions. He was only dedicated to his God. And he died on the cross in our place because of our sinfulness to pay the penalty, to, to pay the price that we owed. And he rose again on the third day to prove that God's love and forgiveness are real and to offer eternal life and reconciliation to anyone who would believe. And marriage is meant to be a picture of that. That when a husband and a wife love each other, are committed to each other, serve each other, for a husband to to take on the posture of a servant the way that Jesus took on a posture of a servant for us, that it's a picture of the gospel. Your marriage isn't about your marriage. Your marriage isn't about you. At the very, very best, it's it's like a... tiny little sliver of a foretaste. It's like, a, it's like the analogy between the little communion wafers we eat versus the marriage supper of the lamb that we're going to have at the end of the age. It's like that. It's like, it's like your marriage is like, like, like LaCroix compared to like the rich wine we'll drink at the, at the feast. It's like, like a hint of a lime that somebody's waving around in the other room. It's like the best marriage is like that. It all is to point to the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is what a marriage is. According to the broad teaching of the Bible, Genesis, Ephesians, other places as well, marriage is this covenantal commitment. Your entire lives united together, man and a woman, with the intention of displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk about the dance of marriage because that's one thing to define it. It's another thing to actually live it out. Now, whereas my definition of marriage is something I have used for many years, this dance of marriage is new. So I'm going to try it out on you today. 
And I, I use this language of dance because, let me just say right up front, you heard this in our scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 5. There's no way around these words like, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. You know, whenever I do weddings, I will sometimes, often will reference this passage, and you do weddings, uh, even for Christian couples, but you know that there are people in the crowd who are not necessarily followers of Jesus, and when I read those verses, I always kind of like to look around and see who's scowling at me, uh, because this runs kind of countercultural for us in our more kind of broadly egalitarian culture. You know, we live downstream from the cultural influence of John Lennon saying, all you need is love, and is a very kind of flattening out um, of uh, cultural roles. I would just simply remind you that there are other cultures for whom this would be no problem whatsoever. And that we, we need to get outside of our cultural biases to see what the word of God has to say for us. And so we come across a word like headship or submission, and for some it's like, well, we'll just kind of awkwardly ignore it. Like, oh, I read that, but let's just talk about something else. Another approach could be to try to explain it away. Well, the Bible doesn't really mean what the Bible says. Or yet a third approach could be like double down on it in a way that's like, oh, I love those headship and submission verses. Like, don't be weird. Um, I want to say this. These instructions are here from God for a reason, and God intends them for our good. So let's work hard to understand it correctly in the context of this passage, in the context of the storyline, and let's talk about the dance. So here's, here's my explanation of what I mean by the dance of marriage. We'll break this down. So marriage works like a dance. Corresponding partners, listening to the same music and embracing their roles in loving and sometimes surprising ways. Marriage works like a dance. Corresponding partners listening to the same music and embracing their roles in loving and sometimes surprising ways. So let's talk about what it means to be corresponding partners. So back in Genesis 2, you may have noticed that the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, therefore I will make a helper that corresponds to him because none of the livestock or the birds are cutting it. So there's two words there, the, the corresponding and helper, corresponding and partner. Uh, the word for corresponding is a Hebrew word, neged. It's a very common word, almost 150 times it's used in the Old Testament. And it means like um, in front of or, or um, a mirror it can be used as, or it, it really just, I mean, corresponding. It's like I can see myself in here, we're, we're partnering together. Sometimes it's even used as the word opposite, and I think that it's really um, connected to that idea of the rib or the side, that there's like, a, there's like a two halves that just work together, that just fit together for the husband and the wife. The word, though, that maybe gets us a little bit more tripped up is the other word for helper, as it's translated in the CSB, and most, most translations do that. The word helper is a very uncommon word in the Hebrew Bible. It's the Hebrew word itzer, excuse me, and it's only used 16 times total in the, in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, three of those references, of the 16 times, two of them are here, right, back-to-back -back in Genesis 2, there are three references of military aid. A king says, who's going to be my helper? Who's going to come to my aid? And some king or some military person shows up and, and, and provides help and rescue so they can win the battle. The other 11 references, 11 times, of the 16, I'm no mathematician, but that's like a lot of not so many, the word etzer is used of God. 
God is the one who shows up and does for us what we could not do on our own. It's all throughout the Psalms, a reference in Deuteronomy 33. How happy are you, Israel? Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. He is the shield that etzers you, the sword you boast in. I belabor this point because it might be easy for us to read a word like helper used of a woman in our English translations, and and we might slide into something like helper, like like an intern, or an executive assistant. I've got all these things, I just need somebody to help me. Just here, take these things, do them. And that is not what is being communicated by the author of Genesis. The idea being here is that God said it's not good for the man to be alone. He can't do the created purpose. Man cannot do what God created humanity to do by himself. So there needs to be a corresponding helper who shows up that matches up perfectly and does for the male what he could not do for himself. So for the women to hear this, just all women, married or not, to hear this word being used, this etzer, the most common, when that word is used, most commonly it is referring to God. So in that showing up and helping and rescuing sort of thing, you are displaying the image of God. And men, it's a reminder not of our, you know, uh, bossness, but of our weakness and our help, uh, helplessness, an area where we men were not, we didn't have it, we couldn't do it on our own. That we need each other as corresponding partners, like in a dance. In a dance, if you're to, to do a dance, how many of you are excited for the Winter Olympics coming up here? Anybody excited for the Winter Olympics? I love, I'm going to say something here, and I mean it sincerely. I love figure skating, like love. Pairs figure skating. The, the elegance and the strength that's on display, the courage on these like five foot nothing women to have some dude just throw her 11 feet in the air and spin four times. Like that is, I would not do, I wouldn't let any of you touch me in that way. Uh, the corresponding partners that, that you have to have both in order to make this work. That is the portrait that is being displayed here. Now, I want to talk about the same music, okay? Corresponding partners who are listening to the same music. Now, what do I mean by that? Because, uh, you know, well, let me just back up. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, an author, Bible teacher named Winston Smith, uh, came across this in his writings. I'm very grateful he pointed it out. This whole passage, you know, in verse 22 that starts with, wives, submit to your husbands, and all of this stuff about marriage, the immediately preceding verses are these. Starting going back to verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So before we ever get into this idea of of husbands and wives living out this relationship of submission and, and headship, Before that, we have an instruction to all followers of Jesus Christ to adopt a position of humility, to adopt a submissive attitude, a submissive spirit to all of us because the Lord Jesus himself, though he was in the very form God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of what? A servant. 
And though he was the master, though he was the rabbi, though he was Lord, he took off his outer garment and clothed himself in the clothing of a servant to wash his disciples' feet. And this is the attitude that all of us, married, single, young, old, male, female, should have the same attitude of Christ Jesus. And I love that it's all this language of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making music to your heart. It's this portrait of like, I'm living my life listening to this song of the Lord, this song of love, this song of freedom, this song of service, this song of of mutual respect and submission that then flows out into all of my relationships, not just my marriage. The music is love. How does Jesus say you can sum up all the commandments of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What does Paul say? The the entire law can be summed up in the commandment to love. So if we're in this marriage relationship, singing and listening to the music of the Lord, the music is that of love, valuing the other as men and women equally created in God's image, as men and women equally dependent upon one another. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that woman was created from man, but every man is born of a woman, so we're not independent from one another. And we are equally recipients of God's saving grace. As Paul wrote in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus, equal heirs, equal recipients of the goodness of salvation and all the treasures, all the inheritance of heaven. So we're listening to the same music. We're singing the same song. Even as married couples live out this command to love in some different ways, in some defined roles. So, number three, the the defined roles within the broader context, within the broader commandment to love, now we can look at what it means for me as a husband or my wife as a wife to specifically live out love in the context of marriage. It does say, wives, submit to your husbands as in the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. It should be pointed out, I've already mentioned this, that all of us, male and female, are to have that submissive attitude, as Paul just said a moment ago. But within the context of marriage, there is a unique role that the husband and a unique role that the wife are to play, that the husband is in the, in the drama, in the play, in the, in the ice skating, in the figure skating. The husband is to portray an aspect of the Christ role, and the wife is to ap- or portray an aspect of the church role. And it must be said that there is no command anywhere for husbands to submit to wives. In fact, verses like uh, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, Back this up and say, yes, all are submissive to one another, but in the marriage relationship, husbands are to take a role that is reserved for the men. Now, some would come along and say, well, what if this word head, you know, uh, husband is the head of the wife, what if that doesn't mean like authority or leadership? And they'll point out that it can sometimes mean like the source or like the headwaters. And that is true, and that is maybe a helpful aspect to add on to our understanding of what the head means, that it's a, it's a source, that you're to be a source of life to your wife. But we can't ignore the fact that the, word used, the, the, the passage also uses the word submit as tied to headship. And if you go back, you can look all throughout literature... Uh, the Septuagint uses the same word. It's, the word is kephale in the Greek. uses the same thing for the heads of tribes and judges, those who are leading the tribes. 
In Matthew and in Luke, it's the same word, kephale is the same word used for the cornerstone, where Jesus is the, the stone that the builder is rejected has become the cornerstone. That's kind of this, this key role to play. Early church history, they used the word ah, kephale, not kephale, for those who wouldn't follow the leadership of certain bishops. And even in Colossians chapter 2, the same author as this, the Apostle Paul writes, that Jesus is the head, the kephale, of every ruler and authority. So there is, within this role of, of marriage for the, for the husband, there's a role of leadership. It also might need to be pointed out, just so you don't assume it, it does not say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your own husbands. This is what we're talking about in the context of marriage. What is, okay, going back to what I previously said about the same music, within this responsibility and within this role that is given to the husband, do you read through the passage? Do you hear when our sister Andrew was reading? It says that husbands are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and then there is one same word that is used seven times of what that means. What is the commandment for husbands to do? Make decisions for? Set her, set her straight? Love. That is the commandment. That is what biblical headship looks like. Love, 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 love. So much of the pushback on a passage like this about submission and authority is because we live in a culture where authority is very often understood as I'm the boss. I get to give the orders. You have to do what I say. I get the corner office. I get to leave work early. I get the privileges. I don't have the responsibilities. In the economy of the kingdom of God, biblical headship and this place of authority for the husband is to pick up your cross and love your wife. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and he uses it for our flourishing and for our good. So if the Lord God gives a husband a place of headship or authority in the relationship, it is not so that you dictate everything that happens in the family. It is so that you can love your wife and build her up in the good news of Jesus Christ. And wives, the submission to your husband is never to submit to something sinful or foolish but to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So if there is an instruction or a, or a decision being made that is contrary to the will of God, your primary responsibility is to the Lord Jesus. Lastly, on this point, these biblical roles, these defined roles, are often surprising. They're sometimes surprising. So we can say, yes, uh, if men's bodies were built, again, I'm speaking in broad strokes, built for strength, then there's a protection thing there, a provision thing there. If women's bodies were built for the nourishment and the nurturing of young children, then there's a nurturing and a nourishing thing here. But, but let's not be too rigid. And let's not import in cultural definitions of these rules into what the Bible says. Did you notice, did you notice, <laughs> in the scripture reading, <laughs> it makes me laugh because once you see it, you can't unsee it. So I'm about to, I'm about to show you something and then you're never going to be able to unsee it. Men, gird up your loins. In Ephesians chapter 5, 
Paul gives the instructions to men to, you know, to, to, to lead their wives, or to love their wives, as Christ is the head of the church. What does it look like? Verse 26. Uh, he's going to love, you know, just like Christ did for us, um, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Washing. Uh, it's literally the same word for bathing. Verse 27. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot, spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Spots and wrinkles. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about? Huh? Laundry. Verse 29. No one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cares for it. What are we talking about here? Meal prep. Son of a gun. You guys. The Apostle Paul says, men, you're the head of the wife. So give her a bath, do the laundry, and cook. Yes. Here's the point. There are absolutely things about being male, being female, that they're stereotypical for a reason, because there's ways that God made us. But it's so easy to import certain cultural things in or certain assumptions in, whereas the instruction from the Word of God for you as men, biblical men, biblical husbands, is that you are to care for your wife by, and it's metaphorically, it could be literally, probably should be literally, but at least metaphorically, bathing her in the Word of God, presenting her as without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish, nourishing, feeding, cook the meals. I almost ironed this shirt last night and then I forgot. But uh, you, you, you see the, the way that it kind of flips. I even think of um, like men doing domestic chores. It makes me think of the Proverbs 31 woman too where it says that she girds up her loins and makes her arms strong. Some of y'all forgot that the Proverbs 31 woman was doing like bicep curls, okay? Like she makes her arms strong. So may we listen to the word of God, what it's actually saying, and be cautious of over-importing cultural definitions of manhood and womanhood into these things. Cynthia Long Westfall, who's a New Testament scholar, just points out the surprising nature of this. She said, when the husbands are addressed, the male role is not described in the terms of the expected categories of warrior, protector, provider, and patron, and instead the imagery quickly shifts to household scenes. The domestic realm, similar to, you know, kind of stereotypical American culture, was the woman's domain in ancient Greek, Hellenistic, and Jewish cultures, and these acts would sound like a role reversal to a Hellenist. So it was surprising then, should be surprising to us now. Winston Smith summarizes it beautifully, this whole thing of the dance, the author, and I've I've linked to this book up on the church's website. He says, as we live in relationship with each other, guided by the spirit of Jesus, we should live musical lives with each other. Our words and actions should be hymns of praise to God and encouragement to each other. Part of that music is a willingness to submit to one another in relationships structured by authority. It should look and sound more like a dance than a forced march. In a march, one person sets the tempo with the baton and everyone falls into lockstep. In the marital dance, however, the husband leads as he listens to the music of Christ And because the wife hears the same music, they're able to keep time in their own minds and move as one. 
So let me conclude with some practical instructions here. Um, and again, it's hard because everyone's marriage is different. The things you need to work on are different. Um, I actually had a conversation with Pastor Jamin and his wife Kelsey this last week. We went out to dinner with them. And they are kicking around the idea of even doing like a marriage class. So if, if you are somebody who is like, hey, we could, our marriage could use a tune-up or we could use some help and we need some more practical hands-on, um, just get in touch with, with either Jamin and Kelsey or you can send an email to connect at soundcitybiblechurch.com. And uh, we don't have dates or any kind of details scheduled yet, but it just came up this last week. And so, um, but let me just offer you six things briefly. These are six principles I think that will work for anyone's marriage to at least make sure you've got these these in place. And I'll move through them quickly and I'll let the Spirit lead you in your marriage and your conversations as to which ones maybe need to be focused on this week. Number one, you have to put Jesus first. Your marriage will not work if your marriage is first. Your spouse cannot satisfy you at that deep soul level. Only God Almighty can. And if you truly want to be able to love your wife or love your husband, you have to put Jesus first. For any of you who desire to be married and you're not yet, this is still the same thing that we're all practicing. Jesus to be first. Marriage isn't ultimate. Even even Jesus himself said that there's a day coming after his return that will be like the angels, neither married or given in marriage. And for some of us who really enjoy our marriages, that can be a little bit sad. Like, oh no, I won't be married in heaven and we can just... You know, I think C.S. Lewis put it well when he says, look, whatever it's going to be, it's better than what it is now so we can trust him. So put Jesus first. Number two, cultivate friendships. This will be another teaching that we're going to tackle here in a few weeks, but just the idea of friendship. A lot of American churches will focus on marriage, 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 and so neglect the art of friendship. Um, This is probably broad brushing a little bit, but in my experience, more women are prone to pursue friendships outside of the marriage, and many men forget that they're supposed to do that. And I just want to encourage you men that one of the best things you could do for your marriage, for your wife, is to pursue genuine, close friendships with other men who will build you up in Jesus Christ, hold you accountable, walk with you through repentance and, and restoration if there's been sin. Like, cultivate friendships. Women are going to find someone to complain to you about anyway, so you need to have some guys in your corner. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but friendship is such an important part for as couples, but also as individuals. Number three, work on your own weaknesses. And number four, celebrate their strengths. How many of you find it easier to do the opposite? Hey, you're not doing this, and you're not doing that. You know, I was trying my best, and I was, you don't know my motives and all that. Jesus said, get the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in theirs. Work on your own weaknesses and celebrate their strengths. Again, to the men, celebrating their strengths needs to move beyond complimenting her physical appearance. Nothing wrong with saying, oh, you're so beautiful. But if you haven't matured beyond that, like, you know how when, like, kids go to, like, preschool and they're like, oh, let's fill out this thing about for Mother's Day and what do you love about your mom? Like, she's so pretty and she makes me sandwiches. And then some of you have not moved beyond that maturity-wise in how you compliment your wife. I speak truth in love. What is it that makes your wife tick? What is it that she values? What is it that's in her soul that just reminds you of Jesus Christ? It's fine to say you're so pretty. I mean, yes, she's prettier than you, so yes. But move beyond that. Number five, embrace the ordinary. 
Sometimes in our marriages, we're looking for like these big, spectacular moments. The, the, the wedding day itself, this big, expensive, lavish party you threw, and then now it's laundry and dishes and those sorts of things. And every single day, you are given an opportunity to pick up your cross, die to yourself, and love your spouse like Jesus loves us. I've seen it sometimes in my pastoral ministry of someone, you know, their, their marriage has been distanced. Like, okay, well, I'm going to buy you a wedding ring or I'm going to buy you a car or take you to Mexico and those like big kind of over-the-top displays of things. And like, yeah, it might be too late because you've missed the day-in, day-out opportunities to really build your spouse up. So embrace the ordinary. And then number six, lastly, live in God's love. Because like I said at the beginning, even the best marriage... It's not about that marriage. The best marriage, all it can do is be a faint signpost pointing to something much greater. Dear friends, do you know how loved you are by God? Do you know how loved you are by God? And all of the grasping and all of the clamoring and all of the wandering and all of the fear and all of those things that drive us to seek love in other places. Friends, if you are a Christian, you belong to the God who John tells us is love. And this is love that he died that we might live. And even now, as we prepare to go to the table of the Lord, may we all be reminded, men, women, young, old, married, single, and anything else, may we all be reminded that the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus is the ultimate example of love. It is the ultimate love. And as we eat and drink and we feast on him, may we be built up in his love so that we can love others with the love that we've received. Let's pray. God, we... Give this time to you, and I ask even as we come to the table to eat and to drink, as we lift up our voices to sing and to worship you, I pray, Lord God, that we would be built up in your love. Lord, I do pray for the marriages in this room. These last few years have brought a lot of heartache and a lot of difficulty into people's lives, and marriages are, are struggling in many ways. And Lord, we want to be renewed, not by our efforts, but by the good news of the gospel. So Lord, would you meet with us now in this time as, as Pastor Jason comes to lead us in communion, as the band leads us in song. We want to meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen.